Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in or logging in or whatever the correct term is. And we have got a lot to cram in in our time together as ever this week. If it's okay with you, I will reflect briefly on the BBC and the coverage of the uh, death of Prince Philip and then turn to questions. The reason I'll do so briefly is because the live Rock and Roll Politics stream is happening this Thursday at seven o'clock and I might want to reflect at greater length about what the BBC coverage and the general reaction to the death of Prince Philip tells us about the United Kingdom. I haven't fully decided. Two topics I'm definitely going to do for the live stream on Thursday are David Cameron and Northern Ireland because they are both extremely revealing and need exploring in greater depth. So I'm definitely going to do those two on Thursday. I hope you're all going to join me because I'm also going to be making an historic announcement at the live show on Thursday. So you can get your tickets at the King's Place website as usual and we'll be kicking off at seven o'clock with live questions, predictions and say my reflections and then your responses to my reflections definitely on Northern Ireland and David Cameron and perhaps a bit more on the whole Philip saga and what it tells us about the state of the UK. Just briefly on the BBC, I think anyone watching with any kind of rational sense of detachment would have concluded that the BBC coverage was absurdly disproportionate. It was like something out of a kind of weird, surreal Monty Python. All channels showing the coverage of Philip. Apparently on BBC Four on Friday there was just a kind of blank screen, which incidentally got quite a substantial audience. And the tone, its ubiquity, was preposterous for someone who uh, very few people in the country knew in any serious sense. Um, now, let me make it clear, it was a moment of historic significance and a life led over such a span is fascinating. It was unquestionably a big news story and needed reflecting at length. And because of the kind of country we are, all kinds of schedule pulling and specials were required. But that continuous rolling news, the phrases of a nation in mourning and associating everybody as being in the same sort of emotional state was so outdated. Uh, lots of people compared it to the 1950s. And I kind of despaired as it all went on into Saturday and Sunday, not to the same extent. But I kind of know the reason. And the reason, while an explanation is as depressing as any other possible reason, these decisions, and I put decision in inverted commas, because as I'll go on to explain, it's very hard to see who takes decisions in the multi-layered management of the BBC, 
are driven in all cases not by bias but by fear and this isn't new it's been going on for a long long time and the fear is of very precise organizations or individuals and I would put it in this order the BBC is most scared of the Daily Mail followed by Rupert Murdoch's newspapers it's very scared of the Times which it regards wrongly as close to them as an impartial news source uh, whereas actually the Times and its news, co news coverage and its range of columnists is absolutely rooted on the right, but they're terrified of the times. They used to be really scared of the sun, less so now, but still scared. And then on Twitter, quite a few Tory commentators scare the life out of them. And then you get to Tory MPs and, of course, number 10. The reason I put it in that sort of order is that when New Labour was in power, they were still more scared of the Tory newspapers and then towards the end of that era, the Twitterati of the right than they were of the Labour government. Um, there are many examples of how they fell into terrible traps by trying to follow the stories of Tory newspapers about spin and control freakery under new Labour because they suddenly found they were being praised by these Tory newspapers who scare the life out of them. And when it comes to the royal coverage, there wouldn't have been really serious, substantial thought. It, it goes back to, the fear goes back, well, a long way. But I don't know if any of you remember when the Queen Mother died, aged about 290. Martin Lewis, the newsreader that night, didn't have on a black tie and a black suit. Now, Martin Lewis is no revolutionary socialist, um, but he didn't have this black tie on. And it didn't overwhelm all other coverage right away. And I think she died, I can't, I can't remember, was it a Friday or Saturday or something? And I think the Mail on Sunday, or maybe the Daily Mail on the Monday, splashed on the BBC's apparent complacent attitude towards this national tragedy and the BBC panicked and scrapped all schedules there was wall-to-wall -wall coverage of the Queen Mother's death and its aftermath everyone in black you know it makes Keir Starmer being dwarfed by Union Jack seem subtle in their response and that would have been a template of what not to do for these terrified managers of a front page on the Daily Mail. And that would have driven much of the coverage. Everyone wearing black, uh, acres and acres of never-ending waffle about uh, what was happening and why, um, out of fear that a single male front page could make the lives of some of these senior managers problematic. Uh, and it's kind of, it's an alternative to really robust thinking about what is proportionate in this context and others. Um, it, it's really interesting. They, they, they retrospectively at the BBC got themselves into a sort of quite a bad state about how they'd covered the Brexit referendum. But in a way, a referendum in itself requires 
the BBC to give fair coverage to both sides, and even if one side were kind of making preposterous claims, it's for the other side to expose the preposterous claims, not the BBC. But on things like this, they are so fearful and so timid. It makes you wonder, really, how much longer a defence for such an institution can be made. And they've already got one wing of politics after it. But in their attempts to appease that wing, as I say, through fear, not considered thought, they risk alienating many others. And they would say, oh, yeah, oh, God, yeah, oh, Steve, you know, if it, if it was me, and they won't be listening to this probably, but, uh, oh, yeah, part of a metropolitan elite, part of an intellectual elite, don't understand voters and stuff. I completely do. It was very interesting. I was, when the Queen Mother uh, died, I was up in, actually, the north of England in one of the so-called Red Wall seats, and it was very it was calm and considered and thoughtful and we were in a pub that evening and people were talking about it but it was actually the panic-stricken response of the bbc to the daily mail criticism that whipped part of the population up into a frenzy so there were queues for miles suddenly outside um wherever the coffin was laid uh, for people to go and pay their respects, you, you know, miles back, and there was a sort of air of kind of Diana-like hysteria in the air, but it was whipped up by the coverage. It wasn't there at the beginning. And I speak as someone who idolises many celebrities. I'm, I wish I was more intellectual, but kind of, I'd be thrilled when say, I don't know, when Bruce Forsyth died, who I think was a comic genius. So if they'd given a week to him, I'd have been thrilled. Uh, I hope they give a week when Paul McCartney dies or, you know, but, but these are kind of people you feel you know in a more tangible way than these understandably distant, non-elected, cocooned figures. Um, and... Anyway, all I wanted was a kind of sense of proportion, not anything I completely recognise, as I said earlier. It's a lead story, it's a moment that demands much reflection and analysis. But God, was it over the top, and as I say, for really depressing reasons. That organisation needs leadership that is brave, reflective and intelligent. And... I mean, I'll do it some other time. I think there are reasons why it doesn't get that kind of leadership. But, well, let's put it this way. There's not much sign of it at the moment. Don't really, there was in that John Burt era, era. He was both brave and reflective. You could disagree with a lot of the things he was concluding or doing. But it needs that kind of depth and sense of purpose and bravery. He was functioning in the Thatcher era under huge pressure. I think as much pressure as the BBC is under with the current government. In, in some ways greater, actually. Um, but anyway, that's for another day, the BBC. Uh, but anyway, there is. I might do a bit more because I think there will, the frenzy will continue well up to Thursday. So do get your tickets. There aren't going to be many more of these. Uh, these rock and roll politics live from a room in my house because hopefully 
theatres will be opening soon. Yeah, we'll be free. Anyway, for that, just to repeat, you can get the tickets at the King's Place website. It's 7 o'clock on Thursday. Get a glass of wine or two. I think we're going to need it this Thursday. And I'm going to do, for sure, Northern Ireland and Cameron. And I look forward to hearing your thoughts on that and other questions. Don't know what the prediction will be yet. I do know whatever we vote on will get it wrong. Okay, thank you for that. Let's now get to a few uh, questions. And the first is from Andrew Verity, who says that, thank you for the podcast. They've been keeping me sane during the series of lockdowns. So thank you, Andrew, I'm pleased. Anyway, he listens to them while walking. He says, sadly, that's all he does while listening, as opposed to the more exotic activities or locations offered by some of your other listeners. For example, lion taming, wall of death, motorcycle riding, space station. Yeah, yeah. For those new to the podcast this week, that's the kind of activity our listeners get up to whilst listening to this podcast. So if you're just walking like Andrew, others are lion taming while reflecting on politics and the media and all the kind of things that we all try and make sense of in our time together. Anyway, and by the way, there are a lot of questions on Northern Ireland, and Andrew's is one of them. The ongoing tensions and violence seem to grow nightly in Northern Ireland. The Johnson government has apparently declined the opportunity to hold a summit between the relevant parties. Is it my imagination? Or is there a likely purpose behind this to simply wait until things get out of control and then blame the EU? Well, I think there are two parts to that question. We've got lots along similar lines. I don't think their intention is to sit back and await chaos, because that chaos could be truly frightening and feed on itself. It's already happening. But I do think that they are outrageous enough to blame the EU and to say this is a consequence of the EU when this, the Northern Ireland situation, was A, predicted, not least by Major and Blair during the referendum, but was the direct consequence of Johnson alone negotiating a withdrawal agreement in which he proposed putting the border between Northern Ireland and the rest of Great Britain. But I don't think, I I think the reason why he hasn't gone there, why he hasn't tried to bring others together, is that it's just so far removed from what he is about. And there is a trap here, that even though he, or a British Prime Minister, has to fulfil this role, he is wholly unsuited to do so. Not least because he's lied to the DUP. Famously, he was invited to speak at their conference and he promised never to put a border in where he has. And he's lied to business leaders in Northern Ireland saying there would be no additional paperwork with his form of Brexit. But by character, he hasn't got the focus or patience to bring these groups together and sort it out. And yet there is no one else in a position with the authority to do so. So it's going to be a mess. I don't think they want that. No government could want that. But in explaining the mess, yeah, you watch them blame the EU. A similar question from uh, Graham McGregor. How do you view, how do me and the audience, all of us, view Johnson's apparent 
indifference to the situation in Northern Ireland? Is it to facilitate the demise of the protocol, curry favour with the DUP? And Andrew uh, Graham makes the same point uh, as Andrew, uh, is he going to blame the EU? Well, we've done that side of it. It is, he's certainly, if he's trying to curry favour with the DUP, there is no way that favour will be reciprocated because, I mean, God, historians are going to look back at this with such fascination. He, Johnson, has shafted the DUP, but they were willingly shafted. They kind of wanted a hard Brexit. They turned away from May's Brexit, which, of course, proposed that Britain remained in the customs union until, I mean, this was another surreal episode, magical technology dealt with a border between Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland. Um, yeah, so it's, um, you know, carrying favour. I mean, there's going to be huge strains between Johnson and the DUP. There is already. But both of those sides are deeply culpable for the situation we're in. Much more on this. That's why we need some wine while we have our evening together on Thursday night, live, uh, on Thursday. Uh, from Jeff Strange. Yeah, the last time I heard from Jeff, he was uh, writing... I can't remember what it was about, uh, uh, Jeff. But anyway, oh yeah, I know what it was. At the, at the start of the first lockdown, Jeff was running kind of like marathons, but he's now knocking back the sourdough bread, as we all are, to get comfort. And he reflects, as I have been talking... Um, there was a, He was talking a bit about last week's episode where I said in passing the coalition of Cameron and Clegg so so many of the seeds that are being uh, realized now and I kind of said I've got to write more about the coalition there's a book in that coalition it's underexplored I was doing it in the context I interviewed Alistair Campbell about his diaries which cover this period yeah anyway Jeff says do it maybe I will I have to say Jeff I'm just about finishing another book which is coming out in September. Uh, but yeah, uh, there's definitely a study to be, a book to be done. It's kind of half a thriller and half a nightmare, actually. And that's just the writing of it. Uh, yeah, and he also reflects on consequences in politics. I've been tweeting recently as um, people, other people have tweeted various developments post-Brexit, you know, trade chaos Northern Ireland and I've just retweeted it and just put consequences politics is partly about the moment and then there are the consequences and we're living through a lot of consequences at the moment talking of which back to Scotland and uh, Nick Radcliffe says I was reflecting on Alex Salmon's transparent attempt to game the electoral system for the Scottish Parliament. If we take him at his word, rather than assuming it's simply the wrath of a man scorned by his chosen successor as a result of his own behaviour, it irresistibly brings to mind the US practice of gerrymandering. Uh, yeah, he calls it sal salmon mandering. Salmon mandering. Ah, clever term. Uh, Nick. The only thing I would say about that, this was the structure set up, not by Alex Salmond, but, uh, well, it was ultimately endorsed by the Labour government, uh, elected in 1997. And it was set up partly, actually, because I think Tony Blair knew 
he was going to disappoint the Lib Dems and Paddy Ashdown about electoral reform for the House of Commons. So he wanted, there were other reasons as well, but he wanted to give the Lib Dems a more proportionate system in Scotland. We know about the other reasons. It was sort of an attempt to ensure that, actually to prevent what did happen, uh, a nationalist party getting an overall majority. So the system was in place. He didn't put it there. And in a way, he's just identified a way in which he can both make trouble, make a point, and his objective, clearly, is to win some seats on that list system and make a difference. Whether he does or not, we don't know. Paul suggests they are struggling. Uh, Scott Creswell, a new listener, uh, and he says he's enjoying the podcast very much. He wonders which wing of the Labour Party uh, Keir Starmer is on. He's recently read a book about Harold Wilson by Kevin Hickson called The Unprincipled Prime Minister? You need the question mark there because Wilson was condemned as unprincipled for a lot of his career. I think that's not, that's far, far too simplistic. Anyway, apparently in that book, the categories are the old left, Bevanites, Michael Foote, the new left, Benites and Corbyn, the old right, Gatesgalites, the new right, New Labour and Blair. Well, those categories are fair enough. Where's Starmer in all of that? I don't know yet. And he needs quite soon, he's got the excuse of the pandemic not to have done it yet, to offer much clearer definition. He gave an interview to the Sunday Times magazine on Sunday. And that's a good vehicle to really clarify and define uh, for a leader. And I read it, I wasn't sure what the message was, whether he had thought that he wanted to convey something in advance. Um, you know, and so we await definition, Scott, is my evasive Wilsonian answer to your question. From Dominica Jewell in France. Uh, dear Steve, as I write, there's a plethora of information on the government website about the do's and don'ts of flag flying in relation to the death of Mr. Windsor Sr. Truly bizarre. Is that the case, Dominique? I didn't know that. I wonder what the advice was. I think if I went and had a look, it would be so bad for my blood pressure. Uh, you know, I'd probably have to head straight for a doctor's appointment. Yeah. Holy bizarre. The do's and don'ts of flag flying in relation to the Duke and his sad death. Yeah, it's, it's all wrapped up at the moment. The obsession with flags and the, as I said, the disproportionate coverage of um, the Duke. It's kind of, yeah, it's all interconnected in ways that, um, well... I've said it, haven't I? Um, but it's it's deeper than what I've said today. And we need to look more into it. I've done an episode, for those of you who haven't heard it, on flag flying about three weeks ago. So if you go into episodes, you'll see that one. And uh, we've had lots of discussions about it on this podcast from uh, listeners. And yeah, anyway, related to that, actually, Venetia, well, not related to the flag flying, Venetia Kane says... Uh, fascinating interview with Alistair Campbell on the podcast last week and she says oh yeah we talked about whether there'll be a public inquiry and when it would be not with Alistair Campbell but with all of us lot after the interview anyway her question 
and it will be the last one for this podcast is Johnson effectively has the polling advantage of being a wartime leader. Once the war pandemic is over, will he suffer Churchill's polling fate? Well, obviously, it's a temptation if you are Keir Starmer to hope that that parallel continues, that this is a wartime situation and Johnson being the wartime leader enjoys poll ratings that defy reason. But of course, we know what happened to Churchill in 45. I mean, Labour didn't just win, they won a landslide. And the answer is we just don't know. The past, uh, Venetia, as you know, I'm sure, is an unreliable guide. Quite often politicians use the past as their guide and it proves to be a very fickle one. Because they don't know what's going to happen next, politicians, they quite often turn to the past for guidance. George Osborne did it, you know, after the financial crash. This was a wholly new challenge for politicians. Uh, Brown uh, uh, partially rose to it with a kind of Keynesian stimulus package. George Osborne and David Cameron turned to the past in the 1980s and consulted Nigel Lawson and Geoffrey Howe and came up with propositions even tougher than theirs in the early 80s, real-term spending cuts and austerity as a response to a global financial crash. And they weren't really trying to analyse what was in front of their eyes, but they turned to the past. Anyway, that's an example where the past is an unreliable guide. It might happen. It might be that once we are through this pandemic, uh, voters reflect that they need to move on and they look at this figure of apparent solidity, the leader of the opposition, and turn to him as they turn to Attlee, having learnt lessons about the potency of the state and what it can do to help rather than stifle. We just don't know. It's one of the joys of politics, really, I suppose, that... Um, one of the joys and torments of politics uh, that we don't quite know what's going to happen next. We've got time, actually. We haven't done... Uh, those of you running a 5K, some of you won't be finished. You'll still be running and wanting more, more, more. So Helen Gordon writes uh, in reference to the interview I did with Alistair Campbell last week. I, I, She says, Helen says, I wonder that neither you nor he discussed Ed Miliband's decision to run against David... Actually, Alistair mentioned that as one of the things that condemned Ed subsequently and his complete failure to understand from the outset that knifing his brother as he did, exacerbated by his failure to win a majority either among members or MPs in the leadership contest, always meant that he was going to fail. The thing is this, uh, Helen, on him standing, what was he supposed to do? Ed Miliband. Labour leadership contests don't come up very often. They're coming up more frequently now because it's a party with an identity crisis and that always triggers lots of leadership contests. Look at the Tories post-97. But the Labour tends to hold on to a leader for as long as a leader wants to remain in power. Ed Miliband had been a cabinet minister. He had formed very different views from David about the new Labour era and what was required next. Was he really not meant to stand? And when he stood, 
it's not his fault that he won, it's to his credit that he won. But of course you're right to say it's a huge problem for Labour leaders when certainly they don't win majority support amongst their own MPs because when things start to go wrong, as they always do for Labour leaders, MPs who haven't backed that leader turn on them. Uh, Labour MPs turn on Corbyn, they turned to a lesser extent, but some of them still turned on Miliband, Ed. Uh, they did to some extent with Neil Kinnock, actually. And of course, Tony Blair had won a huge landslide in his uh, victory in 1994, including amongst MPs, who then never really turned. So you're right that an authority of a Labour leader is determined partly, but only partly, as to how they won. And in terms of him standing, it wasn't a knifing of the brother, actually. He just wanted to stand and put a case for the leadership. He might have been, in your view and others, preposterously ambitious or deluded or whatever. But I think he had every right to stand and try and win. And that's the sequence. Yeah, God. Well, as I said last week, it was an underexplored area, but all of us have explored it in some depth in the last two podcasts. But lurking in our exploration, I think, are many lessons for Keir Starmer and the future. But that's for another day. Anyway, look, thank you so much for listening. As I say, uh, much more in-depth with all of us. I hope you can all join us. There aren't going to be many from a room in my house uh, in the coming months, hopefully, unless there's another bloody lockdown. Um, But do join us on Thursday at 7 o'clock where we can reflect more on the whole saga of the coverage of the Duke, Northern Ireland, and the lessons, and there are many of them, of the David Cameron affair. I think there will be many twists and turns by Thursday evening. And I'll see you all here for the podcast next week. Thanks very much for listening. Send the questions in. Oh, yeah, by the way, yeah, God, forgot. What is that email address? Here it is, uh, as if you don't know. It's steverick14 at iCloud.com. And the tickets for this Thursday's live streamed rock and roll politics in which we can all take part are on the king's place website do book them in advance and then we can just relax say over a glass of wine we'll relax we might get worked up these are big big themes anyway thank you very much and have a good few days